Hello and welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to examining successful legal marketing strategies driving new business development at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. In every episode, you'll find actionable takeaways that you can implement today. The podcast is a production of Picture More Business, a corporate photography studio with a core focus on the legal industry. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, I am delighted to be speaking with Jake Dorr and Nari Sintusek of the Court Square Law Project. The Court Square Law Project was created by the New York City Bar Association and the City University of New York School of Law to provide high-quality legal services to moderate-income clients. The firm trains and supervises recent law school graduates to develop the skills necessary to carry the project's mission forward in their own practices. Nari is the managing attorney at the Court Square Law Project, and Jake is an attorney doing intellectual property work for the music industry and small businesses. Jake and Nari, welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So let's just start with a, a quick background. Can you just give me the big idea behind the Court Square Law Project? The big idea is to close the access to justice gap in New York City by providing affordable legal representation, while at the same time educating new attorneys in how to handle a wide variety of cases so that they can then go out and start their own solo practices serving the same population. How did it get started? In uh, 2013, uh, the New York City Bar Task Force on New Lawyers in a Changing Profession created this analysis, uh, a study that essentially outlined why uh, new attorneys need to both get jobs and be educated in those jobs and also highlighted the uh, fact that there are many New Yorkers who need access to legal assistance um, but can't afford those services. So we were developed as a project in a collaboration between 19 founding law firms that donated uh, $100,000 apiece and the New York City Bar Association and CUNY School of Law. How does it differ from something like the Legal Aid Society? either in terms of uh, mission or in ter- terms of the, the audience you're trying to reach? Well, I, I would say the, the biggest difference where we are from legal aid is uh, we are charging for our services. So uh, legal aid caps out typically, depending on the organization, but um, typically around 200% above poverty level. Poverty level is, I believe right now, around $13,500. So 200% above that, about $25,000. So if you make more than $25,000 and you go to legal aid, they're not going to be able to take you as a client. And so then your options are few. Your average market attorney, which in New York is, you know, say anywhere on the low end, say $300, but going anywhere up to $1,000. And so we're trying to bridge that gap between the, okay, you can't get free services, but then you have to go pay $300 an hour. That's where we kind of come in and, and differ from legal aid. The tough part in New York is that if you make $30,000 a year and you're a single individual and you come into even a place that's affordable for legal services, it still sounds like a lot of money. What is the balance between sort of that mission-driven aspect and actually creating a viable business? Like, how do you, how do you balance that? It seems like you're in a, you know, like you're saying, it's a very tricky kind of spot to be in. Yeah, it's um, it's difficult, and it's something that we talk about daily. And I think the what we know is that housing, for instance, is a, is a good example. When they did the um, study back in 2013, I think uh, about 99% of people were 
going unrepresented on the tenant side in housing. I think it's gotten a lot better in New York, um, especially since de Blasio, there's been a big effort to give tenant representation. But we know there's a market there in terms of volume. It's just trying to educate people and make them aware that that they should have representation and that it might be more affordable to get it early than it is when they're trying to fix situations down the line. We're trying to also help people unbundle services. So, okay, you might have, uh, I mean, I work more with the small businesses, so it's kind of easier there where uh, I'll talk to a small business about their entity formation, about their intellectual property, and kind of uh, see what they can't afford and what they can't afford. If they can do the entity formation themselves and save some money there, it's just up to them and their budget. And I, I try to try to educate them on what the possible issues are and which are more complex than others. And, and, and then it's up to them at the, uh, what their budget is, really. You know, with your IP and business focus, I assume you, your practice here is a little different than some of the other folks. What, what, are, what practice areas are, are the attorneys here involved in? Is it business-focused? Is it more consumer-focused? You know, it's not going to be personal injury. It's going to be more landlord-tenant, trust in estates, that kind of thing uh, is where the gap is. Is that fair? I think that's fair. We developed our practice areas based on the interests of our fellows and where we were most needed. And it turns out that's everything (laughs) Uh, except criminal. So we have a lot of trust and estates planning clients and we have small business. We have immigration clients. We have a, a lot of very significant chunk of our cases are family law cases, too. Is this essentially training attorneys who are going to be solo attorneys or building small practices how, how does how, how does say a mission driven practice differ than any solo attorney working in any of these areas? Well, the goal of the project, at least in, in my mind, is to eventually, years from now, create a community of attorneys who have as, as their primary mission affordable legal services, not out to make necessarily the most money, but out to make a living that it, that gives them security and. Um, the ability to buy a home and raise a family, while still providing services to New Yorkers who can't afford the high-priced law firms. We, we've already had some people go and try to go solo. I think the idea is that whatever we do in our next endeavor, we keep in mind that there is this justice gap that sh- should be filled. And if you can do it efficiently, there's a large market for it. And I think, you know, Jake was saying earlier about the importance of uh, being able to unbundle our services. It's kind of a shift in how attorneys have always thought of themselves and the way they practice. So, you know, in the past, attorneys were retained for full representation at 25,000 retainer, whereas now it, it is more useful to the public and to the attorney to unbundle services and do sort of limited scope representation. And you know, if you can just get that in your mind as an attorney, that that is an option always on every case or almost every case, hopefully that's something that will appear more in their practices further on down the line. There are a couple of things that you were talking about, uh, social justice, uh, which is something I wanted to talk about, you know, that aspect of it. I just want to talk about sort of, you have almost two audiences that you're speaking to, which is in the legal space and then also developing a client base. I don't want to talk about both of those. Because I think that changes how you market a little bit. The other thing is, you mentioned, you know, creating this uh, uh, this kind of uh, representation in New York. So I want to talk about 
how New York differs from, say, the rest of the country? Is this something, a model that could be built without sort of the density of a city like New York? And what does that market look like here uh, in terms of making this viable here? Because there's a lot of, there's a huge number of people who need services and have some income. Um, I mean, New York does have a bigger income pool, I think. And it's more expensive to live here. It's tremendously expensive. Housing alone, I think a lot of issues in family law come up in New York (laughs) because people don't want to lose their apartment. Um, They have a rent-stabilized apartment. They don't want to lose it. And then that leads to much more kind of strife and agony in the actual legal matter that follows. So I don't think you would have that problem where housing is such a source of stress in other cities in, in this country, most cities. And yeah, New Yorkers do have a higher cost of living. It's just everything is more expensive here. Um, and it's not just the fact that we're, you know, we may might have a higher overall salary per individual in New York City. It's the fact that everything else really takes up that salary. So you have transportation costs, you have the fact that housing is so expensive, you have uh, daycare costs. I mean, it's amazing how much daycare costs in New York City. Doggy daycare costs a lot in New York City. So yes, higher population density. Uh, Also, with regards to the population density, it's interesting because you have a lot of micro communities, the Korean American community, um, the uh, Jewish Orthodox community. There are these micro communities that have their own um, cultural traditions in terms of how they seek out legal help and if they even feel the need to seek legal help outside of their community. And then there's a question of, are they receiving adequate legal help within their community? The goal of this, when it when it started, um, especially with Karina and Lynn, was that we do it. Part of the reason of doing it with CUNY School of Law is that it could be a model that other universities adopt. So if we show some success, then it, it might be able to spread throughout the the country at the university level. So it's a, it's a pilot program of sorts. I mean, it has, it's ideal if it works in its own way, but if it, if it becomes a model for other, other schools to emulate or other uh, organizations to emulate in building these mission driven practices, that would be That'd another be form. Yeah, that would yeah. be the dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we do have a researcher who is observing us and keeping track of everything we do and kind of tallying up our results. So that is definitely a third prong of what we are is, is a research project. So the, the second part of the question was, was also, what does the potential market look like? How many, how many people are underserved in New York? You know, how, how possible is it to build a practice with, you know, within this, this market? Well, I would argue that almost everyone is underserved in New York City. Um, if you think of moderate income individuals in any other part of the country, that is a, a pretty narrow range of people. In New York, because of the cost of living because of the particular difficulties of living in New York City, I would say most New Yorkers are moderate means. I would say that most New Yorkers would struggle to find $8,000, $10,000 in their bank account to hand over to an attorney for representation. I just read an article yesterday that talked about how half of Americans don't have anything in savings for retirement. It's useful to think of moderate income New Yorkers and Americans as a much bigger number than we typically think of. 
in terms of that, we were talking just before we started recording about, you know, the the New York Times articles on retirement. Mm-hmm. And w- there was that one bit where they talk, you know, people are saying, how much money do I need? And what would I do with that money? And what would that money buy me? And none of them mentioned, I could have a lawyer represent me for various issues I might be having. How do you, you know, how do you develop that sense that that people can afford legal representation and that they, how do you get them to think, I should call somebody? It is really difficult. Right now, Court Square Law Project is partnering with uh, lawgood.io, and they are wonderful designers who are very interested in helping educate the populace about the kind of legal concerns that everyone should have. So we're developing checklists with them, and you know they're going to make it into some sort of snazzy infographic that we can then distribute through social media. But you know we're we're new to this, just to kind of providing free legal information that's not legal advice to the general public, because most people don't want to think about anything legal related. It sounds all negative. You know, we want people to get wills. People don't like to think about their deaths. We want people to review their employment contracts with an attorney so they know what they're getting into and and the dangers of, you know, if they decide to to quit that job. And uh, people don't want to think about anything negative and the laws associated with negativity. So that's part of the problem of getting the word out and getting information out to the public is people have to want to look at it. So it needs to be somewhat enjoyable for them to, to want to look at it. So, you know, we tried with our website to make it approachable and fun. We have a picture of one of our clients who, you know, had a baby and, you know, got a will and a trust from us. And we try to make it accessible and in plain English, but it's always, you know, that's an extra chunk of work that we have to add on to our existing caseload and trying to market ourselves, trying to create content that's approachable and friendly. It's always a struggle. And then trying to get it out there on social media, none of us are marketing experts. We don't know how to do it. So we created our own webpage and our own Facebook page and our own Twitter feed and tried very hard to educate everyone in our little social circles. But that, that tends to be other attorneys. You know, uh, not necessarily people Joe on the street who who doesn't know that probably he should get a will. I mean, Jake, we met at a uh, a freelancers union event, I think, or some yeah, some yeah, panel yeah. or talk. Yeah. How are how are you going out there to 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 build uh, a client base to to talk to people to do some of this education and then to to onboard them as clients? When we first started, we sat around and talked a lot about client outreach. And the most obvious spot we thought were, okay, there are people who are making too much for legal aid, so legal aid just turns them away. And legal aid has a very high caseload, so they don't don't really educate people when they just turn them away. And you might call legal aid 10 times and and might just get lost in the shuffle. So we did a lot of outreach to legal aid and said, okay, can we come and give you flyers? And and that way, if somebody comes through the door and you don't have to spend much time with them, you can kind of say, oh, there is somebody out there available to you. So our initial um, outreach was to a lot of nonprofits um, and places like you were talking about your your own personal experiences early. Um, and I worked with, I did some band management um, before I came here and still like to work with bands and stuff. But that that working artist is a really, especially in New York, a, a really good market, I think, for us. It's 
freelancers who make a living wage, but they are in New York. And they also have a lot of intellectual property and stuff that should be protected, but who, because of the amount of money they make and things, they often do things themselves. So I thought, okay, that's a good a good market for us, that working artist. So um, where can I go to to find more of those people besides my own network. So I uh, went to the freelancers union, places like volunteer lawyers for the arts, and just made them aware of me, uh, do some intakes uh, at volunteer lawyers for the arts, and talking to executive directors at the nonprofits and just let them know we're there. And and then they've, you know, somebody comes to them and and it turns out it's a good a good fit is they've been directly sending people to me and that's kind of how we've done that. The interesting thing about that is I was talking earlier about how with legal aid, they cap out at about $25,000 and they'd send us over somebody who's making 30 and they would still find us to be too expensive. We've been looking more to even reach out to higher wealth individuals. You know, there's a lot of people in New York who have tremendous student debt or debt of any kind. And we take that into factor. So somebody who might be making more, who might be able to spend more on legal services, but in reality, they don't have a lot of assets. So so we're trying to find out better ways to reach out to that that market of people. So two questions in terms of support. Um, As you're talking to these artists, you know, you're looking for some of those intellectual property aspects of their needs. Are you working with the other attorneys here in terms of cross-selling and saying, you know, I'm meeting these creatives and I see that they have these 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 needs in terms of say contract or IP issues, but they also need a will. They also need, you know, landlord tenant tenant help. Are you, you know, is there that kind of cross-selling here or are people a little more siloed? There uh, is definitely cross-selling. Uh, the very first client I got was because uh, I went to a class at the Small Business Development Center trying to do outreach like I was with the freelancers union. And and I got a client who wanted a will. Um, he said his wife had been out at him about the will and he'd figure out the business stuff a little later, but he should really get a, get a will together. We do it here. I had uh, some people came in the other day with some family issues. And by the end of it, I wasn't in the meeting. By the end of it, I was brought in to talk about copyright. We try to do a lot of that. I mean, we, we want it to be natural, you know. We don't want we don't want everybody to come in here to say, "Oh, you should also have a will." Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, we're not trying to to sell to our existing clients, yeah. um, um, but we do try to keep them educated. Um, and, and one easy way to do that is just to make sure our, our own clients are looking at our website. But we have, you know, we work very much as a team. So we and and within that team, we have people who have their own specialties and and, um, areas that they really care about and want to focus on when they leave. So Jake is obviously very comfortable with the small business realm. And we have another attorney who is extremely interested in estate planning. Um, We have another attorney who very much wants to do custody issues and another attorney who is extremely interested in special education issues. We have a lot of little pockets of expertise where we will bring in attorneys to help out with a, a new matter that an existing client has, and they'll kind of shift around and work with different attorneys. 
What does the support look like in terms of helping the attorneys in terms of marketing, developing a marketing plan or learning how to reach out this way? I would say we get support from the city bar. I'm always going over for CLEs and a lot of those when they're when they're small firm oriented. We went to the small firm, they have a full day symposium and where there you're meeting a lot of vendors in the legal services and we've had them come through. Um, to talk about some stuff if if we do think about going and opening our own firm after this. We have also uh, received some support from our uh, founding law firms in terms of giving us advice on marketing and PR and, you know, setting us up with contact information for people who might be able to help us. Uh, could you guys expand on that a little bit, the the relationships with the City Bar, with CUNY, and with, you know, the, the founding sponsors, how they continue to support the organization? I assume that, you know, especially the founding sponsors have resources beyond just their, you know, the initial donation. They have marketing experts, they have business development and, and all these other experts in the support side and the administrative side. Uh, to what extent are they offering uh, either training or direct assistance? You know, one of the ways that they've been uh, most helpful to us is by providing us trainings. Uh, we receive trainings from attorneys there who've been doing it for 30 or 40 years. Um, so we receive depositions trainings at Skadden. We receive just just great trainings overall from them. So they've been wonderful there. CUNY School of Law has been, you know, just we could not survive without them, obviously. Like we're housed within CUNY School of Law. The uh, faculty support us and have given trainings to us. Uh, their students come and intern with us. And the New York City Bar, as Jake was saying, provides a ton of trainings to us and allows us to do research in their really wonderful library anytime we want. Um, that provides us access to Westlaw and LexisNexis for free, and that's really wonderful. And it's also a great kind of hub to form networking connections. So I just wanted to shift here towards some of the social justice issues, but you'd mentioned this earlier. Uh, I'm curious how you're balancing the business seeds, you know, developing business, creating a sustainable practice for either attorneys or for, you know, a, a broader, the broader project. But how, how do you view doing that? And also in relation to social justice and into, you know, sort of that the, the mission that you have of, of providing that affordable uh, services? It's always a balance, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we fight about it. It's, it's hard. At the end of the day, we need to realize that we need to be sustainable, but it, it helps us. I think the main thing it does, it helps us go the extra mile. We get a lot of people either um, where our caseload's too big or we, um, they might, their legal issue might be something that we don't have any expertise in. And we do a very good job about referring people. They're not going to get lost in the shuffle here. And that's a big thing that we do. We've started to charge for our consultation. We'll do an initial free over the phone, kind of get the basics of it. But we found that we were getting, we really want to educate people and help them with early legal issues and make sure that they're getting, knowing when they should get legal help when they need it. And we were getting a lot of people coming in here and maybe taking advantage of a free consultation, which... 
we completely understand. <laughs> um, but we, we noticed it was taking up a little too much of our time and not really getting anything back from it. So we've started to charge for those. It's $75 for an hour consultation. I would say they usually go over. But it's it's a big help, especially in the small business IP world where I get a lot of people who come in and say, oh, I need to register this copyright. And they don't actually have a copyright. It's a trademark or I can't do any patent stuff. But some people come in and say, oh, I need to patent this. And no, it's not a patent. That's for an invention. You know, you have some it, it, they, they are looking at these general terms that they get out in society and they come in we, and we try to narrow it down for them. And there's a lot of value to that. A lot of people come in for their small businesses and say, I need a LLC. And I, I say, have you looked at a forming a corporation. They say, no, I didn't even know there was a difference or, you know, and so just kind of talking uh, them through that process is it can take a while. (laughs) I mean, they have a lot of questions, but it's definitely valuable for them, especially when they're starting out their business and, and they should, they should get some, at least know their options out there. There's also an issue where a lot of people are well-informed and able to create their own legal documents and able to essentially do everything themselves, but they need an attorney just to double-check it. They just want to be safe. So that's a, another reason our consultations are really useful. So we've had people come in with essentially completed legal papers of some type, guardianship papers. So they wanted us to review it and just like let them talk it out, and then we would say, okay, that's great, but there's one thing you should consider. Don't forget this and don't forget, you know, afterwards this might happen. And that's something we've done in consultations that have, uh, that's really made people feel good about coming to us that's affordable for them and that makes us feel good at the end of the day that we made sure someone was being protected. We had talked earlier also about the two markets, the, the clients you're trying to develop, but also in the legal side. In developing, you know, this idea that that this is a legitimate way to make a living and a, a good way to make a living as an attorney. And I say good in terms of both profitable, but also doing good. You know, what's the case for, for, for a, having a mission-driven practice like this, for working in this way, rather than having the goal only be, I want to work at one of the, the big firms and I want to work for only the biggest clients and I want to, you know... I need a lot of zeros and commas in my my salary. Like, what's the case for building a practice this way? Well, I think legal aid is very competitive as well. So I I think there's a lot of people get turned away from uh, legal aid jobs that if they're aware of this market and um, they can also do a lot of good. Another aspect is people are going to represent themselves. They go into court. They kind of clog up the system. A judge's real job is kind of clear the calendar. They get somebody who's in their pro se. They end up extending cases a lot longer than than they would like to. So we get in there and they enjoy dealing with an attorney and we get things off their calendar a lot quicker. So there's an efficiency for the court system. And I, I feel good about doing that just making things run smoother in general for, for everybody. And, and that, I mean, cause it's, it's kind of a slog in, in, in general, <laughs> but then there's also being a lawyer is you're in the service industry. So if you like the people you're working for and, and believe that you're doing some, some good, it, if 
that's the person you are, then it helps you sleep a little bit better at night. When we talk about some of our fees, we talked sometimes about, okay, you know, we don't do personal injury, but, oh, maybe we could take on one personal injury and kind of hit a home run. And, and then I, all of a sudden you have, you can help other people who don't have the means a little bit more. If you take something on contingency and you take a third and do that. But at the end of the day, we thought that wasn't really, just didn't really make us feel right. right. So, so we've kind of, we haven't done it. So that, that's, what's nice. We have a lot of flexibility and, and, you know, we do what we think's right at the end of the day. I think a lot of attorneys don't really realize that it's not as binary as, as a graduating young attorney, you have two paths. You can enter public service or you can go out and make a ton of money. A lot of people think that way. Um, and I think it's useful for young attorneys to know we exist because, you know, a lot of our fellows come from social justice backgrounds. Um, a lot of them had a dream of joining organizations that would pay them very little, but would provide free legal services to New Yorkers. And instead, they came here, and there was a bit of a struggle when we would have to charge, even though we charge a very small amount. It's kind of a, a mental shift. You have to go from thinking, okay, I'm going to work my butt off for free and help everyone, to, okay, I'm going to charge you and work my butt off <laughs> and help you. So I think it's valuable that we exist as as a concept that you can do social good. You can do good work for people who otherwise wouldn't be helped and still make a living for yourself. You know, as you talk about people coming in with, you know, say some documents already completed or they just want to have something looked over, I'm assuming some of those folks are using uh, a lot of the online tools and some of the mm. tech uh, solutions that are, are arising in legal right now or have been developed over the last, say, five, 10 years, where people feel like they can do it themselves. So do you find that that some of those do-it-yourself tools are a boon for you in terms of developing business, or are they sort of your competition? Because, you know, Skadden isn't your competition, right? Um, (laughs) But whereas, you know, someone, your your target client might be going to uh, LegalZoom to get a contract, right? So do you see that as, as a source of business or do you see that as competition? Or is that not necessarily, is that too, too black and white on that question? Yeah, I think it's a little black and white. I don't think of any of these uh, existing software options as competition. If someone's turning to that, then more power to them. I have my concerns that people are relying a little bit too much on software that is not as fully developed as it should be. I think there are really great strides to be made in terms of artificial intelligence, um, in terms of the new tech companies out there trying to do good in the legal realm. So I'm not concerned about that. I hope that these, that LegalZoom and similar companies that aim to help people legally, I, I hope they succeed. That would really help close the access to justice gap. I don't think of them as competition. I think what you get from us is... Um, the personal interaction, which I think people want to have with their attorney, and that way they can know if they trust us or not. I think especially in the, some of the def- demographic that we're working with, trust is a big thing. They care less about 
where we graduated from law school and, and more about whether they can just talk to us uh, naturally. I think a lot of people enjoy coming to our office. Gives us just a little bit more legitimacy than than going to legal Zoom. So uh, I, I don't find them as competition, but I think people enjoy coming to us more, paying maybe a little bit more, knowing that they can email us or call us. You know, we talked about the, the founding sponsors and, and your other, some of the partner organizations you work with in, in legal um, and some of the, you know, organizations you're working with to help develop business contacts and develop referral sources. Uh, are there any other sorts of communities that you're working with or, or other community organizations uh, that you're building either for, to support the mission or to, you know, to, to develop referral sources? Yeah, we, we got contacted by Blue Ridge Labs, which is part of the Robin Hood Foundation. And every uh, year they kind of look at a social issue um, that they try to disrupt. And so they were looking at access to justice this year. And so they have created Community Lawyer. It's, they have a website, community.lawyer. And we're on their website. You can go through their website and it will send an email out to one of our attorneys. They're trying to grow their uh, their lawyer community now. And then you'll be contacted within three days. You let them know what their legal issue is. It's been a lot of fun working with them um, because we kind of have a lot of open discussion about um, they're a mix of attorneys and web designers and engineers. So there's a lot of people there who are looking at it from just a tech background. And initially there were some things that we had to make them aware of just in terms of ethics. Privacy issues. Yeah. They used us essentially as a guinea pig to test out their referral site that they would then give to other legal services organizations. And then those organizations could direct potential clients to this website. And they can they can scroll down and look at a picture of one of our attorneys and decide Jake looks like a nice guy, so I'm going to shoot him an email and ask him, can he give me a call? And then Jake will. And Jake does look like a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so to, to close this, I'm just going to give you guys like an open-ended, just quick pitch, what, you know, what's the, what's, what's the case having a, a business like this approaching this particular segment of the market? And why do it? Why get into this market of modern income? The marketing reason to get involved in this demographic we're working is, is there is a large group of people who are unrepresented. And if you can harness that population and efficiently provide legal services for a lot of basic legal services to a population that isn't getting legal services just because they're not aware of it, then you can potentially make it profitable and and running. The alternative reason to do it is because a lot of these people are, when they get in the legal system, are trying to do it themselves and they are getting taken advantage of. I don't want to make generalizations about landlords, but it's a landlord or the other side, or they were in a marriage where they can't afford an attorney, but their spouse can. And so the spouse's attorney is gaming the system a little bit more against them. For a small business, if you're a freelancer, you might be with a, a, doing some work for a corporation that 
has representation and, and you might not feel that you have much leverage. So it might help to have an attorney behind you when you're going through that type of thing. And at the end of the day, it, it feels good because you're providing service to people who need it and, and helping. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners uh, who've joined us for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the podcast. The Legal Marketing Studio can be found on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Note that there's no .com. It's just legalmarketing.studio. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss or know someone who might, please send an email to producer at legalmarketing.studio or reach out via the contact page on our website, legalmarketing.studio. The Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business, a full-service corporate photography studio focused on the legal industry based in Brooklyn, New York, and working with clients nationally. If your firm is updating its website, hiring new attorneys, or revamping its brand and marketing materials, give us a call. We'd love to explore collaborative opportunities. More information can be found at picturemorebusiness.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.